My name is Justin Gage, and you're tuned in to the Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions Podcast with your host, Jason Hilder. In Lies and Distortion, the opening essay of his book, Unstrung, Ranson's Stories of a Noise Guitarist, Mark Rabot writes, We seem to love broken voices in general. Vocal cords eroded by whiskey and screaming. The junked out weakness of certain horn players. Distortion, which signifies surpassing the capabilities of a tube or a speaker. In a way, all of that speaks to Rabot's own playing on his own and with many luminary collaborators. Though he can certainly play delicately, afraid beyond the limit quality informs Rubo's sensibility. Since 2008, he's released records with Ceramic Dog, a trio featuring Rubo on vocals and guitar, alongside previous transmissions guest Shazad Ismaili, who's on bass and vocals, and Chess Smith on drums and also vocals. On July 14th, the trio releases another scalded and electrifying record with Connection. Rabot is my guest this week on the show, and I'm so pleased to join him for a rollicking and at times charmingly contentious talk this week on Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions. From his complicated relationship with former Lounge Lizards collaborator John Lurie, to his views on how labor and capitalism inform his relationship to music. We get into a lot of things here. Um, we also dig into his history as a collaborator and uh, touch on his recent embrace of the Gibson SG. All that and a lot more in this charged and intense chat with jazz punk creative icon Mark Rabot. If you want to support this show, there's an easy way for you to do it. You can support Transmissions and all the other work that Aquarium Drunker does as an independent cultural outlet by supporting us on Patreon. Over there, your support makes a great difference uh, to our ability to continue sharing what is spinning on our turntables and what essential bootlegs need to be saved to your external hard drive. All right, here's Mark Rabot on Transmissions. Thanks so much for listening.
Really looking forward to chatting with you. Um, I really like the new record. It's going to be great to discuss it. I like it too, even. <laughs> That's great. Is it? Is that often the case? Um, sometimes, but not all that often. Yeah. To be honest, I don't know. I don't often listen to my stuff once it's finished, because by the time it's finished, I've heard it a thousand times already. But this one, I still like to listen to. Yeah. You know, we talked in I guess it was 2018 about um, why are you still here, and I really. Request- what was that oh yeah no no kidding which was a great i mean it was a great it's a great record too and i keep thinking about how so much of our talk then centered on the the emergent weirdness that has only continued and gotten weirder you know what i mean in terms of pretty much everything i can think of a lot of things you could mean but go on ahead and explain further well, I just mean, you know, well, let's let's start with a, a little. Uh, we'll start with a slightly easier question than than that. <laughs> how have things? How have things gotten weirder? You know, but you just got back for some shows, right? You played some shows with the the Bad Plus recently. Yeah. Yes, and to speak of getting weirder, that was so. It's so much fun to tour in America. Yeah, you know. Is is it really? I mean, what's yeah? I I can't. It's it, things seem so strange to me post COVID, right? Yeah, well, things are really strange. I mean, I noticed. I took a lot of pictures, like because mostly we were staying in not so great hotels in industrial parks and office <laughs> office sure. parks. So I took a lot of pictures because it's such an interesting landscape. But you know, touring in America. I mean, first of all. I think I like playing for Americans, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, because, like, I mean, playing in the Midwest, it's a great rock audience, or we had some great rock audiences, you know? For sure, um, yeah. The The record's a great rock record. Thank you. Um, we think so. <laughs> well... Before we get into it, you know, I mean, I guess what I was what I what I was thinking about was the way well yeah, let's go let's go back to my first broader weirder question about how have things gotten weirder. I know you're you've been involved a lot with um the musician or the the music workers alliance, the trade advocacy Correct. group, right? Uh-huh. And, and something that I feel like I've noticed at least kind of where I'm at and from my vantage point is uh, a lot of independent venues got kind of swallowed up by corporate structures, right? In the in the wake of uh, COVID, uh, what has your what's your thought? You know, I'm thinking obviously about the la- the labor movement in general, and there's also the strike right now with the WGA and all that. So I'm just wondering, you know, did you get any sense of the uh, a, a shaken up system, or did it seem sort of like business as usual to you, or what was your experience on that front? Well, I think that things are very shaken up right now. I, the underlying issue in the WGA strike is AI. Mm-hmm. And it's now the WGA and the SAG after strike. And the American Federation of Musicians contract with the oh, AMPTP, but the, the television film producers who the WGA are on strike again. Yeah. That comes up either November or December. So we'll see if the musicians union is going to strike or not. But um, AI 
represents a potential real threat, a yeah. real serious threat. Um, and, you know, there's this idea, well, you know, new technology, you can't stop. New technology does not have to be a disaster for workers. Right, right. I mean, you think about the period from 1925 to 1948. National radio was introduced. The record industry as we know it, as a mass industry, was introduced. Sound synchronized film was in introduced. A few years later, the the jukebox would be coming along. And this put this was all new technology that um, put yeah, a massive influx of, of it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, a massive influx of it. And it put thousands of live musicians out of work. But the the musicians who replaced them studio musicians who recorded who recorded live who recorded the records yeah uh, and the film scores are were and still are among the best paid workers in the world uh you know well over a hundred dollars an hour yeah okay for for studio work and all kinds of benefits and back-end payments so and also that's just the that's just the tip of the iceberg these um these what happened was um, there was a strike in 1943, I think, in 1948, that actually shut down record production, mm. shut down radio. Um, and as a, as a result of that strike, there's all kinds of funds most people don't know about, but Music Performers Trust Fund, yeah. the Special Payments Fund, where a little bit of money gets taken, you know, and film, there's similar things in film, film producers, secondary markets fund, all these funds that um, basically, I mean, they were extremely radical idea. They yeah. said, okay, you're displacing all these workers. Well, the people who profit from that need to pay, pay them so they don't suffer. Imagine that. Right. Imagine. So, but it actually happened. And although it's kind of winding down now a bit, but the music performance trust fund, like, had tens of millions of dollars i think 70 million yeah every year since since that time the special payments fund like it's it's for it's kind of a robin hood oriented thing yeah if you're a musicians union member then and you do any recording under under union contract then your record company pays in based on the number of records you sold but you get paid back based on the number of hours work. So in right. other words, what that means, if you're a, a punk rock musician or a jazz musician who uh, whose record sold 4,000 copies, uh, it pays in on that, but you get paid back based on Taylor Swift's record. Right. So it's, it's checked for thousands of dollars. Problem is, is that the musicians union does not, there's is not organized in indie recording which right. is a large majority of the number of of records being made so yeah 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 I that's the difference between now and the 40s it's not that the te if technology changes we have to lose we have to lose but if technology changes and and we're organized we can win if technology changes and we're not organized we're going to get screwed yeah, I mean, I think that it's an interesting 
I find I found myself wondering a lot about that question because obviously it's it 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 threatens to put you know writers out of business you know it threatens to put uh, musicians out of business if these sort of soulless kind of uh, janky looking things are acceptable to the modern masses you know what I mean and I think about AI and it's like there's all these potential uses of the technology some of the sort of audio archival uses and things like that of not generative AI but the uh, the um, extractive kind of like fill in the, the stuff they use to make like the get back documentary I think all that is like well producers are already using tools like that, right? Like they're, they've been using tools like that. So it really does come down to if the, if the, if these companies just want to just farm this out to algorithms entirely, um, I just really don't know what would happen. I wonder if it would genuinely lead to a, a real breakdown of the whole music industry, which is kind of always in the, in the process of breaking down. You know what I mean? Well, let's put it this way. I don't think we can talk in extreme terms. I don't think that everything will be suddenly displaced. Sure. But I think that um, a large percentage, look, post Napster, uh, the recording industry dropped by 60%. Right, right. Some of that has, some, not all, has come back with uh, streaming. Yeah, and sure. And not come back to the same people. Well, no, okay. that and that's the big deal, yeah. But uh, so I don't think you know. I I can't see the future. I and I you know I know there are people who call themselves futurists, and I'm not one of them. I'm, sure. I'm not even. I'm sometimes often I'm not even a presentist. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. I get it. No, big time. But 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 what's you know what's clear in the what what will happen if it is not. Um, if the new technologies are not regulated and the industry is not organized in a way um, where the people who are doing the, this work yeah. um, can assert their demands, what's going to happen is that a huge chunk of the way, not just musicians, writers, musicians, filmmakers, f actors, yeah. Uh, yeah. photographers, cinematographers the the all along across the creative industries a large part of the income what was the standard f types of income will be eliminated right it, it and that's in a situation which is now often close to to not not viable for a majority no for so sure if people want if people want art production to go back into being the province of a few rich dilettantes right yeah who've produced all the great forms of art right all <laughs> yeah I, I don't know you know it doesn't matter you know no there's you know what what doesn't matter if people without money can can do it i mean no, nothing good ever came out of Detroit or Liverpool, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. These places uh -huh. aren't, no, they're not known for any of their, their musical or the, exports. Or the, or the Bronx or Harlem, you know. No, no, for for sure. For sure. I think, hope, by the way, I'm. I, this is irony. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. We have to, we're going to get quoted 100% uh, sincerely. Um, 
No, I think about that lyric and and subsidiary from the new record. You, I mean, you, you, I think you is that you saying <laughs> the wretched penis of capitalism? Well, I, you know, as much as I, yes, <laughs> that is actually a line in the song, but I wouldn't approach that song as a political manifesto. Um, some of my writing on that record and the last several records, um, in over the last. 10 years or so i developed this amazing superpower that like i can rant yeah but <laughs> uh, like, I, I could always rant but i started to realize oh my god you know like i can sell this shit <laughs> yeah you can harness the energy of those raps for sure yeah yeah well yeah the rants um i mean what i do i have a special process i i go through i rant um, when I'm in the mood to rant and like record it or write it down. Um, and it just kind of, it's very sonic based and, and free association based, which on a good night, which will produce some very disturbing or perturbing juxtapositions. And then I go through it and edit it. And what I, what I do is I, if there's anything that makes sense, I edit it out. <laughs> just want to get it down to the pure, the pure disassociate or like you know kind of fragmented forms yeah so so that tune subsidiary yeah it's basically an apocalyptic um it's a it's a an apocalyptic piece but i wouldn't say it's thought out in the normal sense of thought sure how about a song like uh, Soldier of Love? I mean, I was thinking about that one. Soldier, uh, Soldiers in the Army of Love, right? Is that what it's? Uh, yeah. We, I was thinking about, you know, again, how we talked in 2018, and that's obviously we talked about Trump and ICE and, like, the app, the coming apparatus of the police state, all of which these things have, unfortunately, you didn't, I know you said you're, you're not a futurist, but you called some of that stuff, you know? And I mean, but it's easy to... I think, you know, as Bob Dylan said, know which way the wind blows. Like, uh, um, you don't need a weatherman. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's like, it's the, some of this stuff, it's clear the writing's on the wall where some of these ideologies are headed. And, um, but, you know, in the time since homophobia, transphobia, income inequality, all of that stuff has, like, you know, dramatically spiraled and gotten stranger and more vindictive and terrible, and social media is clearly eating our brains, all that stuff. So when you hear somebody talk about the concept of love, I think that has sort of like a charming hippie quality to it often. People don't really think about love in the context of a song like that. Could you tell me a little bit about what you're, you guys are talking about with love in that song? Yes, I can. And that song, if you wanted to discuss it as a manifesto, you can. That is, well, I mean, it's everything I do in a way is a rant, but it's, that, <laughs> yeah, that's a more front brain rant. That it started out as an essay that I was, I've, I've been frustrated, I've been frustrated about something since the beginning, since Trump was first elected. And what's frustrated me is that everybody talks about resistance and everybody understands as one, you know, line in the sand after another gets crossed. Everybody talks about resistance, but nobody really knows how to do it. It's a lost art, yeah. um, you might say. And so the, we, the, the closest 
advisor that we have in our own history, in American history, is the Declaration of Independence. Yeah. And basically that song, We Are Soldiers in the Army of Love, um, comes from three sources. Um, we Are Soldiers in the Army, the title, is a, um, is, is a civil rights era song. I covered it on Songs of Resistance, but it's a traditional civil rights era song. Right. Era song. We have soldiers in the army. We have to fight. We also have to cry. Mm. Um, and it was traditionally sung while people were being arrested in the civil rights movement. Um, so I joined that to In the Army of Love. Um, I think it was an Adrian Rich, um, the poet Adrian Rich addressed the first gay pride march or, or rally and i think it was in central park and she was talking about she was using the the roman the famously queer roman ancient roman army as as a reference and she said i know we're gonna win because an army of lovers can never lose yeah right and so the title comes merges those two sources and the lyrics of most of the lyrics of the song are quoted from well let's see if you can re if you were a good boy in history class um we hold these truths to be self-evident uh and it goes on from there and the second verse uh is well the third verse it repeats that the second verse and the the third verse is uh when in the course of human events and then it goes on to talk about um so those obviously are from the Declaration of Independence. And right. I tried to, you know, like I, I I did the same thing with the declaration that I do when I'm covering like tunes by um by bands that I sort of like. Like when I was covering this Donovan tune, um, um, Wear Your Love Like Heaven, I realized I really mm. didn't like the bridge. So I just didn't do it. I threw it out. I threw out all the words I didn't like and I kept the ones that I did. So I did the same thing with the declaration because sure. they were doing so good. They were doing so great. We hold these truths to be self-evident. Fantastic. But then right in the next phrase, they fucked it off that all men are right. created right. equal. And right. not only did they say all men, but they meant all white men. Right. And not only that, but they meant all property owning men. So they got off to a great start and they did great stuff, but they screwed up that second phrase. So I fixed it. So yeah. I said, in my version, it's that all people are created equal. Right. Um, and in case people didn't get the message, um, I spell it out that Muslim, Jewish, black, white, yellow, brown, gay, straight are all created equal. Right. And that's, that's you know, I think... I think it's important to have a it's important to have a declaration of independence. Yeah. Yeah. It's important you can't have a resistance without a declaration. Yeah. And a declaration that has wide consensus. And what what um the other th thing that's interesting but there's another problem another problem with the declaration. Like I say really they get it a a plus for um you know for for form and um <laughs> and effort effort yeah a for effort but, but the but the other thing that well this isn't really their fault hmm. but it makes it 
what makes it not so useful for now is they say, um, when in the course of human events, it shall become necessary to sever the bonds hmm. that tie one people to another, or one, I forget what one nation to another, one people to another. Now, you see, it's kind of hard. They were t they were dealing with a colonial situation, so they were dealing about kicking out the colonizer. Right. It's kind of hard for us. You know, how do you do that if you live in New Jersey? Right. I mean, Brooklyn, we could do probably a pretty good job of it, but <laughs> you know, yeah, but, uh, no, no, for sure, for sure. Yeah, I think that like it's it's clear like I that we're at this moment where the exclusionary element of our culture there's this part this very regressive part that is is speaking very loudly and and the systems that we've been talking about are just so just so screwed up you know that like it's like of course a culture we're not producing a culture that's capable of we talked also uh I, who, you'll have to remind me i feel like such a goof who the quote was from the you you know if i can't dance you can if it's not a party if i can't dance or if i can't dance oh you yeah no no that if i can't dance you can keep your revolution emma Gold, it's a quote of emma goldman great american jewish anarchist i think that's such a beautiful quote and i i think that a big element of of the ceramic dog records and something that i really like about them is how just like bashing and crazy and fun they are they're great great kind of party records in their own way right yeah like they're they get heavy you know but that that's a kind of party too but i also think that like some of what you're saying is like there's i i it's hard to get that the broad appeal right to like want to bring people to the to the party that also wants to recognize the climate crisis or whatever you know what i mean or also wants to recognize all the the major things that we're against so I feel like sort of creating a more inspiring tone on the progressive vanguard is something that I, I, I like when I see that. And I feel like this does that. Like you mentioned that there's apocalyptic elements on this record and there are, but there's also those sort of like post apocalyptic, right? The sort of like, so what do we build after stuff falls down? That kind of vibe. Does that resonate with you? Yeah, well, we go on partying, but definitely. I mean, <laughs> you know, we're we're a band, you know. Yeah, yeah, totally. Speaking of the apocalyptic thing, I mean, that's why one of the reasons I like touring in America. I mean, I have friends, you know, that I like to see and and sure. extremely cool people in in the most unexpected and cool scenes in the most unexpected of places. But um, man, like you know, you drive and there's nothing but signs for personal injury lawyers and Jesus. <laughs> you know, it's like. Yeah, there's well, a lot of Jesus advertising, uh, and a lot guns. of Jesus advertising, and guns, freedom gun stores, and fireworks. Wow, maybe it's because it's getting near the Fourth of July, but like, well, man, for all through the pandemic, we had fireworks going off nonstop where I where I live. Yeah, well, I can tell you where they're selling them. Yeah, you go out on route. Yeah, I forget what it was. Shazad and Chested. Most of the driving, I was sleeping. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they I, they very wisely decided that it would be we'd be safer if i slept sure um, well we well you know we we had shazad on this show and i mean he's just a genius that new album that he did love in exile with vijay eiler and uh i think it's yeah. aruj uh, aftab 
I, I'm, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Yeah. Um, but wow. Yeah. What an incredible record. So he's, he's like, he's next level. And the playing on this is, it's great, right? Like what, what, do, what do you, what do you like about his feel when it comes to ceramic dog? What does he bring to the table in your, in your view? Well, you know, I mean, we've been playing together since 2005 or something like that. Yeah, and a long time. It it really feels, you know, we when we lock in, we we lock in, and you know, we've got a definite groove. Me, me, and Shazad and Chess, and uh, in the studio, uh, Shazad always brings in. In addition to the bass parts, he he always brings in the unexpected. You know, mm. um, you know when 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 we have think we have it finished, but it's not quite right. You know, he he's the one who will bring in uh, Glockenspiel or something something yes. you wouldn't have imagined on a metal oriented tune. You know, right? Uh, he, yeah, that um, that imaginative side of his, his personality. Similar to you, I mean, similar to all all people who are really doing what you guys are doing, but you know what I mean. Like that's with him, it's just so evident. Yeah, no, he uh, he has great studio mind. Yeah, yeah, and and Chess, when when did you first meet? When did you first meet him? Uh, shortly after, uh, Shazad recommended Chess. Yeah. Um, uh, there's some dis. There's some dispute about how how it actually happened. What I remember is that Shazad came up to me after a gig and said, "You have the wrong band," and I said, <laughs> "The right band," and he said, "Me and Chess." Now Shazad disputes that and says he just recommended Chess. Yeah, but anyways, I, me being an agreeable sort of fellow, I said, "Oh, okay." It and, worked. Yeah, and we started playing together. Well, that's great, yeah, and that and that long connection is very evident on this record for sure. I recently spoke with uh, Jim Jarmish and Carter Logan Squirrel, and they spoke very glowingly of your recent collaborations together, which was really cool. Oh yeah, it was very. It felt very natural, you know. Um, I mean, I've I've known Jim a long time. I played on uh, a couple of scores of of his you're on a number of uh especially like the mystery train score that's a really good one yeah very interesting score because i got them to rent me a vintage telecaster and then i realized that i needed a vintage telecaster oh yeah did you end up figuring out a way to buy that one or did you just get another no but i got i got another one Hey Transmissions listeners, are you a musical artist or in a band and you're just not sure how to get started sharing your music with the world? I want to tell you about DistroKid. DistroKid makes music distribution fun, and uh, here's the important part, it makes it easy. With unlimited uploads and artists like yourself keeping 100% of your royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to get their music onto Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. DistroKid has just launched a new iPhone app, which allows you to upload your tunes, earn royalties, check your streaming stats, and add lyrics, credits, and metadata. 
everything you need to do to get your music out there and resonating with listeners around the world, head over to distrokid.com backslash VIP backslash Aquarium Drunkard to get started now. Transmissions listeners can enjoy 30% off their first year's membership. That's distrokid.com backslash VIP backslash Aquarium Drunkard. Head over to DistroKid and get your sounds shared with your listeners. Well, both of those collaborations that you and that you did with Squirrel, the G- Garden of Glass Flowers, and especially Il—is it El Deserto Rosso or Rosso? You probably have heard it more recently than I have. But <laughs> I, what I all I remember is I went into the studio and it was all like one afternoon, and and it just yeah. felt very natural. Yeah, the 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 latter one reminded me a little bit of the record that you made in 95, uh, Painted Desert. Robert Quine and Ikawe Mori, yeah. Uh, Chris Forsyth, the guitarist, sent me a copy of that because, I mean, it's it's kind of hard to find. Um, but that's such a good, that's such a great record. What do you recall of your experience making that one? In terms of the sort of, um, there's a s- sort of a small, <laughs> a small movement of, people who are using the term ambient country and i almost hear some real overlap with that one particularly you know that album what do you remember about making that one it was definitely uh the first in its genre and it was it was ikaway's record really yeah ikaway drum programming right? right and she sequenced the tracks and robert quine um I mean, I'll be honest, my contribution to that was mostly improvised. Uh, Robert took it very seriously, and he liked to work on stuff in advance. So he worked on it and came up with a bunch of stuff. And then he and I sat in the studio, and he played the stuff, and I did my best to keep up and and improvised along so that's how that came together and i think ikaway also played live with us mm. um, yeah but then manipulated the recordings after the fact or or i think manipulated them both while you know she was processing nice. things while we were playing and um and after the fact pro- i don't know if she did it what she did after the fact but anyways ikaway was definitely the the main artist on that and and robert put a lot of work in it and I I jammed. That's awesome. Yeah, it's a really it's a really really good one. Uh I mean t- speaking of Mystery Train, I I was thinking a little bit well one I I I read your your book which I really really enjoyed. Um and uh I read I'm reading now John Lurie's book uh and I was wondering if you have seen his television show. Have you watched Painting with John at all? I have seen uh, painting with John, and I saw fishing with John. Yeah, and I read John's book. John's a very talented boy. Yeah, yeah. Do you guys keep in touch at all? No. Yeah, yeah. Well, he's he's up to cool I'm stuff. A, I'm kind of you know I I've always liked John's art and think he's a very funny, smart guy. But you know, I did you notice that I'm kind of the villain? Of, I of, haven't got what? I haven't gotten that far. <laughs> oh, keep reading, keep reading. Like the book is structured, um, the book is structured like it has a dramatic arc that sort of goes uphill. Well, yeah. if you can, uh, you peaks can, and valleys. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
Well, you know, I guess, you know, in terms of the career of a downtown artist, you know, getting increasingly strung out can be uphill. But right. um, so there's a lot of writing about that. If one finds yeah. that interesting, I recommend it highly. But it <laughs> has this whole dramatic arc right up till the um right up till voice of chunk mm -hmm. and then like that's that's the fall from grace is and guess who's the villain who who destroyed john's idealism right because i asked for union scale for voice of chunk apparently right. just in an evan um their uncle had died and i think they had each inherited something like i don't know two hundred thousand dollars which at the time was an off 1988 was an awful lot of money it was enough to buy for example a penthouse apartment with a grand piano in it um yeah so yeah anyways so it was and john had we had already recorded voice of trunk in brazil i don't think we got asked for any money for that or anything we were down there on tour we went in and recorded what we were touring with as a band then john you could see he was getting a kind of captain ahab gleam in his eye mm. and you know he wanted to rec the recordings we did in brazil i thought were great actually mm. we were really hot from playing live and you know it was i thought it was a powerful performance uh but okay john wanted to record it all again and he wanted to record it in the recording in the most expensive recording studio in new york and he wanted to record the session to go from i think midnight till 8 a.m mm. which is good if you're a bat but you know or or have uh other chemical imbalances but but sure. you haven't really lived until you've been woken up out of a deep sleep at 5 30 a.m shaken awake and have to stand up and play a solo on a lounge lizard song that's <laughs> repeatedly it started to feel like you know it started to feel like one of those um psych ops opera i started to feel like i was in some uh yeah I, it sounds like it sounds like you're in like the gurdjieff school or something where you're like going through an esoteric order <laughs> well it sounded like i was in one of those cia secret prisons anyways <laughs> so i asked for i asked for union scale which mm. at you know anyways john details this in the book because apparently he'd been so moved i can't remember he was listening to some artists um maybe it was the score of shaft or something and he or and he found it so ineffably beautiful and then i had to come up out then i bothered him by asking for a union scale for this recording and oh yeah the recording that he had found ineffably beautiful had was also a union recording but never mind <laughs> anyway so so that just trashed his entire buzz and after yeah um i basically got myself kicked out of the lounge lizards which is okay you know i mean i i love playing in the band but um you know i was ready to move on and and i guess yeah he was too but but the weird thing is that the, the book i think he he uses like religious imagery for this betrayal um he quotes uh he quotes john he's quoting scripture 
which, you know, I, I went and looked it up because I know that you might think that I'm very religious uh, Christian, <laughs> but actually it's not true. Uh, yeah. I, I had to go to the book and find out. And, and it was like, he, he dropped a biblical reference, which is something where the disciples betrayed Jesus, which says a lot about his own sense of self and <sighs> what and how he saw his relation to the band. Um, yeah. All I yeah. can say for young musicians is when Captain Ahab um, invites you on a fishing trip and offers <laughs> you points, don't take them. Get paid up front. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, and, you know, it doesn't turn out for uh, good for everybody who goes fishing with him and fishing with John as well. Uh, there are some tragedies in that show as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I imagine others that are off camera. But yeah. uh, <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. No, uh, I I understand that though. No, look, John is very talented, and yeah, the truth is, Voice of Chunk is a very good album. I love uh, it. the The way the press that you, you know the the arguments about it are part of the mythology sure indie mythology that john couldn't find a record deal <laughs> right ludicrous right. an actor who made a record like that couldn't find a record deal come on he couldn't find a record deal that was going to pay him the vast amounts of money he thought he was going to make because it wasn't going to make that money you know right. so i'm my i'd be willing to bet that he turned down many possible offers so yeah you know, but but here we have the New York Review of Books reviewing the book as like the epitome of the real, the true artist, and saying, "Yes, he was John was too pure for for this re the the major labels." You know, I mean, they, for God's sake, they were putting out Ornette Coleman records, Linton Queasy <laughs> Johnson at that. You know, I mean, it's, yeah, it's a lot of nonsense, but that's showbiz. Yeah. <laughs> well, your book is your book's great too and and has it's like one thing I liked about your book was the way you you kind of like were able to bring this steely eye to the to the situation. You kind of are like observing yourself, you're observing others. I found your 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 piece about Hal Wilner so uh so moving. Hal is somebody who I I think of him almost as like a kind of archetype you know in the creative field he's almost somebody in the mold of like a harry everett smith or whatever you know sort of alchemical musical producer you Sorry. guys work to get uh go, oh, ahead. go ahead i'm listening oh yeah no worries no worries it got uh did you oh there you go it froze up no worries uh, yeah, he's somebody who I just think he's fantastic. In the book, you write, sometimes Hal seemed like a comrade in some crypto commie sex so secret that even its own cadres didn't know it existed. Um, I thought that was such an incredible way to describe him. What was hanging out with, with him like? Well, you know, Hal, it was fun, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, half the time you couldn't hear what he was saying because he was mumbling all the time. But... Um, but, you know, he has this encyclopedic knowledge and love of American, American, what can I call it, counterculture of, of, of the 20th century. Um, and, and he, I think he saw himself as a missionary 
kind of to connect like weird scenes from one decade and you know from these different disparate scenes together so like putting uh beat poets with punks and post-punks putting jazz musicians with uh avant-garde classical musicians he he saw himself as a, a bridge of these scenes and and um and he did it as, as i wrote in the story you know he it's not just that he did it but he managed to get budgets for this stuff i mean I was on his team you know um I, I was on his um his Sunday night TV show that he he pulled network TV night show. night music right music right and I remember I remember like I was sitting there uh, I went to one of the shows um I'm friends with Sid Straw and she was performing on it and I was standing there and like Sunra's orchestra was marching around in a mambo line with Al Green playing cowbell and with, with Sid Straw following playing, I think, tambourine and Al Green playing cowbell. And I thought, this this is on network TV, man. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I just think about how in some ways, I just want to know that, that, he, that he was able to sort of bring this uh sense of artistic subterfuge to the whole thing like he tr he tricked the label into doing that or not the label the network because it's on yeah like you said it's NBC right there's so many of those on you can watch them on YouTube and it still baffles my my I can't understand it why uh the rights holders haven't figured out how to create some sort of official version of all that stuff because those performances I mean you got like Screaming Jay Hawkins and Bong Water with uh, Bob Weir, you know, from the dead. Yeah. And you're like, what the fuck? Who, you know, who could dream this up? How could dream this up? Yeah. Right. You listen to like Weird Nightmare, which I think is a great one. Or, you know, I liked the T-Rex one. I liked parts of it, you know, some parts more than others. But I really, I, there's stuff I really dug on that, you know. And so it's like right up until the end, he was making this weird and that seems to me like you know there's a collage art sense to what you're talking about there right mm -hmm. and is that something that you felt a kinship with him because in your own way you know you're often juxtaposing sort of uh or somebody like zorn you know these ideas of like juxtaposing these kind of far off um disparate genres as they were you know did you you felt like a kinship with him in that sense yeah definitely yeah yeah, what was his trick for getting, did he have a, you know, was he a persuasive guy? I, that's part of what I, well, I, I like wonder, I say, you know? He, he got he got budgets. Yeah, so he could persuade you well, that way. <laughs> so he was going to, yeah, well, you know, I mean, I don't understand. One thing that I've always marveled about is how come, how did it happen that in the middle of late capitalism, basically, people have this expe expectation that music is somehow um, pre-capitalist. Like people get, you know, like, like, okay, I love Joni Mitchell, but she's singing, you know, like she's singing with these sad minor chords. Now me, I play for money. I mean, <laughs> Is it really, you know, like, 
Right. Dig it. The the one man band by the quick lunch stand is standing by the quick lunch stand because people have spare change after they buy their quick lunch. Like that person is a beggar. Like, right. Right. Is that really why? How did this happen? <laughs> sure. You know, I mean. Yeah. Yeah. I did see this week that Joni's she pulled her stuff off Spotify at some point and then maybe it's back or something. So, I mean, like this, well, I, good I get for what her. you're but I get, you know, good for her. I, get, I, I, I really didn't. Sorry. I, you know, I think she's no, no, no. But, but like it's, and she's by no means, this is like a much wider cultural of phenomenon. I mean, in the New York times, like all during COVID I was reading it and they say, Yes, it was so inspiring. I felt my humanity restored to go into Central Park or Prospect Park and hear world-class musicians. I say, you know, like, why is it so inspiring to find people begging, you know? Right. It's a disaster yeah. for us. Like, yeah. would they be so happy? Yeah. Says, yes, there was, a phys there was a professor of physics at Yale standing in the park offering math lessons you know would we say wow that's the best thing ever i don't know yeah i hope they yeah. get over it you know yeah well i think that like uh <laughs> yeah you're talking about you're talking a lot of sense i mean there's obviously a kind of people have a lot of different relationships to music you know and I feel like it's so tempting. It's one of those things where it's like there's a, a magical quality to it, right? Or like the thing that somebody like yourself or Wilner could pull together, you know, it it feels like like magic, right? But and it is, but it's also it's also work. It's also hours logged, right? And like and it's it's a kind of labor, absolutely. This is you're you're providing this service, right? And as somebody who's worked with so many different people. I think about, you know, how rewarding it must be or how rewarding it must have been throughout your career to get hired by people to come in and do your thing, right? Like more or less, yeah. like that's it's been the way it's worked for Terrifically rewarding. I mean, I, I love playing in the studio and I've been super lucky to, to work with the people I've worked with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of those, you know, I just saw very last last weekend i saw elvis costello and nick lowe play um and it was a, a fantastic show yeah i caught i caught but, elvis's show at um when he played his 10 night run in new york and it was great i i found the band so much more uh they they were they're playing with time in a weird elastic way that like i hadn't heard elvis do you know what i mean like he's always it sometimes it shows up on the records and i was thinking about how he also played he played so like candy from mighty like a rose which is a record yeah. you play on it's long been a favorite a favorite of mine and it's not always like the one that people cite when they're talking about costello but i think that's such a cool record um particularly you're playing on how to be dumb uh that's a really really good specialty yeah well you know you're somebody who has always stressed the importance of not thinking too technically or uh you know or solely technically about what you're doing um but i wonder 
you've played on so many varied sessions, but have you ever found yourself in a in a position where you felt like you hit a, a, a block in terms of your expression and what you did, you know, to kind of steer yourself out of that? Has that ever occurred over the years? Um, it happens on a regular basis, but yeah. I, I just, I don't know. Um, I find giving myself the time to be bored uh, yeah. important. If you don't fill it up with tons of garbage, then things happen. Um, yeah. You know, like, yeah. like I just find if I get my hands on the instrument, eventually something happens. I don't try to force things, you know, but. Um, yeah, yeah. But do you have like a system for sort of keeping the open space required for that stuff to gestate and kind of come into the to the practice is there do you have any kind of like do you maintain a, a pretty ritualistic schedule no <laughs> no yeah so, just go you with know it. I, mean, I mean you know it's a struggle it's a constant struggle to, yeah to uh to get stuff done but that's part of it, right? I mean, I guess stay at some alive. point you just have to... Yeah, not just to get stuff done, not just to crank it out, but to stay alive and yeah. in doing it, not to burn out. Yeah, yeah. I think about the importance of of, of that, of protecting the art from internal burnout, um, because it happens, you know? Uh, it, hap it, it can happen, you know? Um, but I also think about how you you just have this vast and varied collection of people so you you're always you know being put into new new situations right and i know you've talked about the lyrics are important to you in terms of sort of orienting where you should play where you should sort of fall in the mix is that usually the way it works for you uh yeah well lyrics are important um you know some sometimes i use lyrics as kind of another instrument just to have a fourth voice if it's a trio you know, mm -hmm. I don't really actually care what they're saying, but other times, other times, um, the actual meaning of them means are significant. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like you were talking about your rants earlier. I mean, the lyrics can work in a lot of different ways, uh, and certainly don't have to always be literal. You know. Yeah. Another another thing I wanted to 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 touch on before we wrap up was, you're somebody who pretty often plays a jaguar jaguar is the jaguar your go-to pretty much all the time it has been for a long time um but you know i use a bunch of different guitars i i love this particular jaguar it's 62 i think and um it has a weird kind of bridge that if you play too hard you knock the strings out of tune in about three minutes, which I always play too hard. Um, so you, most people have changed the bridge, but I like the way, like this one just sounds so, it's a brutal sound, I, I love it. Um, that said, <clears throat> um, I've also, I, I've also, even with Ceramic Dog, um, like the sound of ceramic dog was so aggressive. I didn't want to be taking people's ears off on the guitar end. So I used actually a jazz guitar on the last bunch of tunes. And now I actually am using an, uh, a Gibson SG. So, which is like a very classic, you know, 
kind of hard rock or metal guitar. Yeah, have you been an SG guy before? I mean, when I was like 15. <laughs> what kind of what kind of stuff would you have been playing at 15 on on an SG? Well, like when I was 15, the name of my band gives might give you some clue. I was we were called and think about 15-year-old boys, we were called Love Gun. Okay. Sure. Yeah. Very, you know, let's just say it was an aspirational uh, <laughs> naming um and so you know and we had um uh, we had well let's see the the first tune we learned was uh green onions by booker t oh it's a good one. Think, um the second might have been midnight hour by wilson pickett and somewhere in there we we learned um uh what was it backdoor man um which we thought was about a man who came in through the back door and we thought was by the doors <laughs> right Wrong on both accounts yeah yeah uh different different meaning there but you know like you said aspirational uh aspirational, aspirational. <laughs> music so that's what i was using it to play when i think of an sg i mean an sg is one of those i guess i think you know, maybe uh, Jeff Tweedy from Wilco comes to mind. There's, I've seen some photos of Bill Frizzell with an SG. I don't know how yes. often he played no, one. No, I think he's early on. He was playing early on. He was playing an SG, and and he got you know that's all that fantastic you know bending of the neck that he yeah. did. You know, these this kind of like slight variations and chorusing that he got that no everybody kept looking for what pedal he was using it and, yeah and then it, it was just bill you know yeah that's so funny the moment you said that i i thought about growing up uh it's not an sg but i remember growing up my dad would always watch this video of that guitarist pat travers i don't know if you ever listened to him he's like a kind of a blues rocky guy or whatever uh yeah. kind of stadium rock eventually or sort of but he would constantly be doing tricks with the back of the the neck you know pushing and kind of bending against it like that and i could i can hear what you're talking about on frizzell's playing on those early records so it's cool when you see an sg and sort of a non-acdc usage although it's cool there too in my opinion yeah 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 well, we're going now for more acdc sound with ceramic dog <laughs> I like it. Sonically, I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, hey, there are certainly for, worse. Yeah, we're going for the head banging and, you know. Yeah, hell yeah. Well, it's a great record. And, uh, Mark, it's been just an absolute pleasure to speak with you. Uh, it's a huge honor. As I, you know, I, as I look back over your body of work, you've you've been involved in so many great recordings, both as a as a leader, as a sideman, as a contributor, collaborator, and it's really, uh, it's been a real treat to get a chance to speak with you about this new one and a little of the history. Thank you so much for being here with us on Transmissions. Thanks for inviting us. Mark Rabot on Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions. Thanks so much for listening to the show. I'm Jason P. Woodbury. I write, host, and produce it. Transmissions is edited by Andrew Horton. Art for the show is assembled by Dakota Brown. 
Our music comes from Frank Mastin. You can find more from him over at mastin.bandcamp.com. And our show's executive producer is Justin Gage, Aquarium Drunkard's founder. Don't miss his radio show, The Aquarium Drunkard Show, on Sirius XMU Channel 35 at 7 p.m. Pacific Time. Transmissions is a part of the TalkHouse Podcast Network. Visit the TalkHouse for more interviews, fascinating reads, and podcasts. Next week on Transmissions, Gia Margaret on Tapping into the Unknown with her romantic piano. This transmission is concluded. Concluded.